Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. Today, we'll be focusing on the financial intermediaries market and looking at some key considerations that we believe should be taken into account for client portfolios as we move rapidly towards 2023. My name is Connor Power, and I'm the Regional European Leader for Financial Intermediaries and Not-for-Profit in Europe. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Adeline Tan, Wealth Leader for Hong Kong and Taiwan, and Greg Summer, our US Leader for Financial Intermediaries. So welcome to, to both of you. Um, Thanks, Connor. Thanks, Connor. Look, Great to be on. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting the, the regional perspectives, uh, given the geographic diversity that we have on, on the uh, podcast today. And seeing where we can align and maybe more interestingly where there's uh, some divergence in terms of the thought process but before we dive into those considerations uh, that we think will be important for 2023 i thought it would be worthwhile uh, briefly considering where we've come from so why might there be need to make some changes for current from current client portfolios and most listeners to the podcast will be very familiar with the fact that we've come from a, a decade of extremely strong returns and a friendly macro environment and friendly monetary policy. Uh, all of that has meant that your typical 60-40 portfolio, which has really been the bedrock for uh, a lot of financial intermediaries advice over the last number of decades, has done very, very well. Um, but today, the situation is different. We're facing then the barrel of, of double-digit inflation, of rising rates, of rising yields, and very different monetary policy um, being driven in part by the Fed in the States, but also now being adopted elsewhere. So where I wanted to start off is, is that 60-40 portfolio that has done very well over recent decades going to be fit for purpose as we head into that very different type of environment? And maybe I'll start, Greg, with you to see if you have any thoughts on, on that particular subject. Thanks, Connor. So I'll start off with the the definitive statement about the death of the 60-40 traditional portfolio. So um, it's critical, as we speak about many of these themes, that the 60-40 portfolio, or what I would call the death of it, is really linked to to most of the themes we're going to discuss today. Um, Many of the key drivers that historically drove the balanced 60-40 approach no longer exist in the current environment. And we'll speak a little bit about what what those are and why that is. Uh, Mercer believes that a 60-40 portfolio may earn significantly less over the next decade versus the prior 10 years. And the potential for a new 50-30-20 three-dimensional portfolio may be emerging. Um, Institutions have utilized this type of approach for many years, and they've reaped the benefits. And there are many factors now driving wealth advisors to the same direction. So as we discuss these critical topics, I think it's important to remember this potential strategic asset allocation shift because it's critical in in addressing some of these themes within investment portfolios going forward. So I really look forward to to linking the death of the 6040 to some of these key concepts and some of these economic shifts that we're currently going through. And as you said, where we've come from, where we are today, and as we move forward. Yeah, I quite resonate with that, Greg, and the recent moves that we've seen in the traditional equities and fixed income. I think the big shock that the 60-40 is not working anymore is with correlations, how it's uh, tended 
to not quite towards one, but it's pretty close to one. And I think it really harked back to many um, stress scenarios that we've seen over the last 20 years, except this one is looking very prolonged. And as you mentioned, maybe that is a really big shift in economic fundamentals. That means that that 60-40 story can no longer exist the way it was. So yeah, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about on this topic. Great, thanks, and I, I completely agree. I think the the fundamental principle that used to hold that equities and bonds were slightly or or quite well uh, uncorrelated hasn't held over the last twelve months in particular. And and having both of them moving in the same direction doesn't seem to imply that we need some sort of alteration to how we've typically dealt with the a standard 60-40 portfolio in that regard. And Greg, I think you mentioned uh, something more like a 50, 30, 20 portfolio. So an obvious question is is to jump into that and where those sort of allocations seem to be lying. I mean, it implicitly seems to point towards more diversification of asset classes, but is that within more diversification of new asset classes like alternatives? Yeah. So in in the 50, 30, 20, it's 50 uh, equities, 30 fixed income, 20 alternatives. We've seen a tremendous acceleration amongst wealth management advisor clients into allocations towards alternative investments. Um, Many of their programs are now being developed, and they obviously have to manage specific risk profiles of their clients as they think about alternatives. But why don't we look for a second before we even get deep into alternatives? What has changed in the current environment? Why are alternatives so attractive today? Or why are we talking about it today as opposed to historically? So when the 60-40 was first uh, gained gained, uh, favor and people were really interested in that, there were many factors driving that. So the first point, which which we've all three uh, touched upon already, is the fact that there was a negative correlation between equities and bonds. Okay, That's over the near term has shifted. And as we look at a new economic landscape, that may be maintained or it may come and go, but the the assumption that it's a negative correlation clearly has changed. So there's one clear shift that makes alternatives attractive. Secondly, there was a real lack of access to alternative asset classes. So uh, uh, the wealth management community didn't have the same access that institutional institutional investors had. So that, that has shifted. You now have platforms dedicated to the wealth management space you have support from a technological perspective and you have platforms and that support back office and, and capital calls and things along those lines. You have structures that are being created for accredited investors and you have investment managers that are prioritizing the wealth management community. They understand that's where the asset growth is. So they're creating products to support that. Additionally, there, there wasn't a high comfort, there wasn't a high comfort level in, the, in our community. There was a lack of education and transparency. And there's been a great deal of education out there really post the global financial crisis. And Mercer does a, a lot on educating our clients on this space as well. Um, there's also been a shift, I would say, in talent. So post global financial crisis, you've seen more talent from a portfolio management perspective shift from public to private markets because the opportunity existed there. Um, and then finally, a very interesting point is post GFC, Commercial banks never really came back to the uh, private debt market the way they had before. And that created a whole new opportunity 
in the uh, alternatives market. And uh, I think that's been significant. And that void really hasn't even fully been filled today. Um, I think uh, we're all aware that Mercer recently did a, a global wealth management survey, and it showed that 68% of respondents plan on increasing exposure to illiquids over the next five years, and 59% selected diversifying away from traditional assets as one of the top investment opportunities. So I would say that um, if, if a wealth advisor is not thinking about this new 50, 30, 20, three-dimensional portfolio, or even starting to allocate to alternatives, they're really behind the trend. And they really need to think well, uh, think hard on this from a strategic perspective and best serving their clients. I would wholeheartedly agree with that from a, uh, the Asia part of the world, um, that many uh, wealth management platforms tend to lack the alternatives offering. But we've seen quite a lot of pickup and a lot have come to speak to Mercer about how to go about building a platform or how to offer diversification within that platform because private markets are becoming more and more in the area that their peers are also competing. And I think for Asia, traditionally, many high net worth individuals actually made their money through businesses that are very similar to some that the private equity and private debt may be investing into. And used to see that a way to handle wealth managers uh, as a way to preserve and grow that uh, legacy for their next generation. But with returns the way they are, um, I definitely echo uh, the message from Greg uh, that very much the allocation to alternatives is really to support diversifying away from the volatility they're seeing in the market and also challenging their own perception of uh, having some part of that asset lock up for a while uh, into high quality funds. But I think the secret sauce really lies in wealth managers that can offer that full range. I'm not sure what you're seeing around your side part of the world, Connor. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think there's, we often hear of the phrase the democratization of private markets. Um, and we've had institutional investors that have been using them for, for decades. Um, particularly over the last three to five years, we've had a, a large amount of our financial intermediaries clients coming to try and provide that access to the same underlying drivers in terms of the enhanced returns. Uh, the diversification and the themes and opportunities that are accessible via private markets. So absolutely has been a, a huge driver uh, for financial intermediaries to look at their operating model and see if there's a way that they can now provide access to these sort of, of underlying themes and opportunities. And I think that's been accelerated by some of the uh, teams that can be accessed via private markets, which can sometimes be a little bit more tricky to access in the public market. So, for example, we've had a large number of clients come to us to speak about private markets and how they can provide a real difference when it comes to impact investing. And um, thinking about things like the energy transition, I think it's it's absolutely clear that it's going to be required for a large amount of private capital to be able to service what's needed there, whether that's on the loan side to so a private debt or to more equity investments related directly to the underlying assets or infrastructure that are going to be required for that uh, energy transition piece. So you know, certainly there's an, an, a huge amount of drivers um, that, are, that are requiring financial intermediaries to take this seriously. But also really significant investment opportunities that can be taken advantage of if they get it right and can provide that access in an efficient manner. Connor, what, what a couple other items I'd like to highlight regarding uh, illiquid alternatives. 
it's, it's, there are several things that need to be considered when someone is, is thinking about beginning a program and investing alternatives or adding to allocations. So first, one, one mistake or one lack of consideration I see out there sometimes is looking at median returns or thinking all inter- alternative managers are the same. One of the key aspects to investing alternatives is manager selection and obviously due diligence that goes along with that. And I think that can't be overemphasized. Whether it's illiquid private markets or whether it's more liquid hedge funds, you hear individuals speaking a lot about median returns and and trends in the industry. It's all about identifying the top quartile, at least, or at least top half performers in the space. And that's a bit different sometimes, um, or, or more difficult sometimes than public markets. So I don't think that can be overemphasized. It's absolutely critical when you're thinking about an alternative investment program. The other things are having a documented invest, uh, objective investment program. If you're starting from ground zero, it could take seven to 10 years to fully implement a program. You want to spread it across vintages, diversify over multiple years. You don't want to put it all in one, uh, one point in time. So there are things to consider uh, when, when a when a group is uh, starting this type of program or advancing it forward and making sure that you have trusted partners, you have resources and tools, and they have the proper manager selection and continued oversight process. So I just think that's very important to emphasize. Kind of agree more, Greg, but could you elaborate more on that point? Because liquid alternatives sometimes sounds like an easy path on getting all the benefits of alternatives, but hey, it's liquid. (laughs) Don't you think it's Something a little bit wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let, let's talk about more liquid alternatives such as hedge funds for a moment. So hedge funds have really been out of favor now for quite some time. Um, we've lived in this long only bull market uh, that uh, I'm not going to be uh, egotistical enough to know that if it's over or not, but seems to be struggling at the moment. And we've been straight up for many years and hedge funds have been underperforming. And in many ways, uh, the industry has forgotten what the point of a hedge fund is. The point of a hedge fund is to have some liquidity, as as we've mentioned, but also to be a risk diversifier and to protect on the downside um, and to stabilize returns. I think that the top performing hedge funds are doing that now during this volatile period. And I would think that as we enter this economic shift and the additional volatility in the markets and in the economic world itself, I think hedge funds become very attractive if you think of it as a downside protection and diversification. Other things to consider with hedge funds is managers that are adding true downside protection and then true alpha outside the market. Those are things to consider. Um, Also, unique strategies that might be less crowded than a typical long short equity, for example. There's nothing wrong with having long short equity in a portfolio. But there are a lot of unique strategies that create uh, real opportunities out there. And then also understanding what the strategy is, because we've seen in the last decade, sometimes style drift uh, when we look at a hedge fund. So all those things are important when we think about hedge funds. And then once again, back to the point I made earlier, identifying the top performers uh, is absolutely critical and being able to do that with the proper resources and tools. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that, Greg. Um, We did actually a a podcast recently um, and we referred to hedge funds as, I think, the comeback kid, um, which I think is is an appropriate term 
given where we've been over the last decade. And, and I absolutely couldn't agree more in terms of if you think about uh, that macro policy or macro uh, environment that we consider ourselves having been in for the last 10 years, where, you know, if you were invested in, in beta, you have done very well. It was challenging for hedge funds to be able to, to, to keep up with some of those returns without maybe having to take too much risks or, or over leverage themselves. But if you're to look at the last six months, um, I think those investors that stuck with hedge funds and had kept them in their portfolios as downside protection and as a diversifier have really been strongly rewarded for that. Um, I know that our own uh, particular portfolios have, have done very well and have been a, a source of some relief uh, for clients when when included as part of a, a wider uh, growth portfolio. So um, absolutely agree that they're getting a lot more uh, attention and that it's certainly worthwhile financial advisors thinking about whether they should form a, a core part of their portfolio on a, on a go for basis, very much part of that 50, 30, 20 sort of construct that you referred to at the outset. Interesting, Connor. Should we, should we talk a little bit about or um, the, we've all touched a little bit on the economic shift? or the economic environment, or the recession or slowdown. Maybe that's an area that we can link all these concepts together. Uh, Connor, maybe I'll, I'll jump in. Please do. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the first question that we get asked all the time is, are we in a recession now? Are we going into a recession in 23? Uh, and what might that look like and how severe might it be? Uh, I always grew up in the concept that two consecutive negative uh, GDP quarters is a recession, which we did experience, but that has that definition has been rewritten at times. So needless to say, we're in some type of slowdown, and then there are some predictions that 23 will accelerate that slowdown or, or really make it more obvious. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at this and taking a step back. The U.S. and much of the world has had, a monet had monetary and fiscal policies that have provided historic injections of money into the economy, and really easy money policies over decades, if you really think about it. Um, you could argue that the current period we're going through now is really uh, part of a large economic experiment uh, that's been exasperated by external events such as COVID and, and war in the Ukraine. So we're all living in this experiment in essence. And a recession is a cyclical event. But we may be in an economic transition that combines cyclical outcomes and much more secular changes. Um, that includes, as, as we've all mentioned, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and global turbulence. We're, we're kind of putting aside the, the battle between the U.S. and China that was really just beginning in that battle for leadership of the world. And then all the market volatility that comes with this. So even if we experience a more, a not a severe or more moderate recession, it's important to identify that the economic structure and leadership may change dramatically in the world and in the markets. So when we see people waiting for this transition to end and for the prior period to resume, I think that may be a mistake. And they may be being over-influenced by recency bias. So when we say maybe value investing in industrials might outperform growth in technology over the next decade, that might sound silly to people. Uh, but it may be it may come to fruition, and we may be entering a very very different period. So the FOMC's interest rate cycle and really the global cycle, combined with more medium and long term secular shifts, 
which may include, as we've mentioned, positive correlations between equities and fixed income, may require not only may require a very significant change in the approach to asset allocation. We've all mentioned the 50, 30, 20, but the entire approach may need to be changed. And the, the companies that will lead economically may change dramatically. So th- those are big things. And I'm curious, Adeline and Connor, your views on that, because this is really a global shift that's going on because we very much live in a global economic world. Well, Greg, uh, I think the recession is such a different one to 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 emphasize on when it comes to Asia, because you can't Asia being a collective of many different major markets are not all facing uh, with that technical negative GDP print. Um, unfortunately, in Hong Kong, there's a technically in, have experienced a recession, but uh, n- nearby uh, financial in, uh, being of Singapore is certainly in a period of growth, uh, with many uh, new companies setting up there and many wealth platforms actually setting up house there, uh, ready to serve uh, the growing high net worth population in Southeast Asia. And as mentioned there, mainland China uh, is actually still on print for positive growth and still seeing many economic uh, stimulus ideas uh, being launched. Uh, you know, a whole raft of it has been announced today. So the word recession, uh, the question of are we in a recession, certainly isn't taking that much of attention from the wealth measures, except for how it ties into the U.S. Uh, cycle, as you uh, highlighted there, and whether the recessionary pressures are going to change the way the Feds are going to plan uh, their their rate hikes and also what Europe may do uh, as a response to the supply shocks being caused by the Ukraine war. So I almost feel that Asia is sitting watching to see how the recessionary pressures unfold in the rest of the year, but on the ground are still quite keen to be looking for investment opportunity, to be still quite interested in asset classes that maybe the repricing as brought about by the rising interest rates has made these opportunities much more uh, attractive. So I think we have a, 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 a very much a several speed versus the one speed concern uh, sitting here in Asia. What are your thoughts, Connor? You know, being with the UK and, the, and Europe at your side of the world. Yeah, it's great to get the, the varying views. I think we're probably somewhere in the middle in Europe and recession is definitely at the forefront of people's minds. But whether that's going to be something quite mild or or a little bit more painful is the question most people are asking. Um, one of the points I thought was interesting that, Greg, I think you, you alluded to it was there is quite a lot of unknowns on a go-forward basis, uh, for instance, is there going to be mild recessionary effects or will it be something that little bit more painful that, that we mentioned? And one of the elements that we're encouraging our financial intermediary clients to think about is building an element of dynamism into how they're managing client portfolios. So whether that's at an asset allocation level uh, from the strategic asset allocation down and thinking about how that could be adjusted over the short to medium term, or even building that into underlying asset classes, for instance, within credit, as opposed to having a, a standalone uh, allocation to typical standard corporate credit, thinking about asset classes like multi-asset credit that will allow you to shift across the credit spectrum depending on whether certain dislocations might occur in the market. So bringing that dynamism into the portfolio management approach and being able to adopt relatively quickly to how um, macro policy moves, I think is is going to be important. Um, 
maybe to to move us into a slightly different gear then i think what we've discussed so far is that there is slightly different pressures depending on where in where in the world you are but that for the most part there's a, a bit of consistency in that certainly financial intermediaries should be considering whether any of these impact their asset allocation and how they are in particular thinking about allocating to alternatives one of the other uh key subject matters that's on everyone's lips at the moment is ESG and in particular the net carbon zero discussion which uh, I've no doubt the listeners will be very familiar with. I don't think we can discuss that without acknowledging that we've had two very severe supply shocks over the last number of years first with COVID and then more recently um, with the invasion of Ukraine and as a result of that we've seen some energy stocks rally and perform very well and and that's been a little bit painful for certain uh, investors who maybe have excluded some of those for ESG reasons so I do think we're at a point where convictions are being tested in ESG um, but at the same point our recent wealth management survey that we talked about earlier uh, gave us feedback that 82% of participants said that client demand for ESG products has increased and likely will continue to increase so I'm interested to hear um, thoughts from from both Greg and, and Adeline in terms of how uh, what's it like locally for for you and in particular how are your financial intermediary clients thinking about addressing ESG in in a in a market that's it's fair to say a little bit in flux. Well, I think Connor that um, at in Asia the focus is entirely around E, uh, mainly because China has announced its. Uh, plan to be net zero uh, by 2060 and that China is also launching several policies in the whole greater China region in order to promote investments into green technologies or uh, green capital or green cities really uh, as part of the greater Bay Area initiatives. So the focus is very much on understanding the E part and I would say that wealth managers have tried to jump on the bandwagon as well to encourage uh, the their clients to think about investments and taking up these opportunities, whether that be in the traditional long-only opportunities or whether in private markets, as we mentioned earlier at the start uh, of our discussion. So I think that the the ESG part is, is not so much burgeoning as, except for the E, uh, as our the clients are looking for opportunities uh, that may re- increase their green credentials and wealth pl- managers themselves are only too eager to help satisfy that. Uh, but I think on the other side of the, the E is, of course, the S and the G. And setting aside G, where you just want to invest in companies that are governed properly, uh, there's certainly be more attention on social bonds uh, and also investments into that have an impact measured uh, at a societal level. But I would say these are still few and far between because um, wealth managers are still needed to differentiate by offering things that can give very, very good returns. And I think there is still a lack of uh, standardized way to measure the benefits or the impact from social um, driven thematic strategies. While I think the E is growing in tension and certainly in Hong Kong, uh, the SFC has also introduced new standards and disclosures for a fund to be declared uh, itself as, as an ESG fund. So I think the, the investors are still watching and learning more about it and being a little bit more interested in how this dif- returns could differ from mainstream uh, returns. But I would say that I see more products uh, rather than take up 
What's it like at your side uh, of, the, of the siege, Greg? So interesting. So the U.S. is a bit of a, the Wild West, I would define it in this category. Um, as, as I think is known globally, we, ha we have quite a few political divisions in this country. And unfortunately, ESG is being caught up in a lot of our political debate. Um, so we, I would say we're not as far along even in the continuum as we're seeing in other parts of the world. Um, the, there's certainly interest, there's certainly a lot of discussion going on. But to your point, Adeline, the, the actual actions are not quite there. In the financial intermediary space in the US, there's a small segment of the, of the industry that focuses only on ESG and only on impact investing. And they're certainly making investments. But the majority of the space is in a little bit, I would say, of a wait and see mode. They're waiting to see, is there actual return enhancement here, or is it just more of a initiative or, fo or focus? So I think we're in that feel-out phase. We're going, it's coming. There's no question. This is going to become integral into, into everybody's investment thesis, but we're still not quite there in implementation yet. Other things to consider are, Recessions and economic and energy challenges may stunt or, or, or slow down the adoption in the U.S. There are some people who feel that should accelerate it, but it's more likely potentially to slow it down a little bit. And there's been lots of things in the press where, where groups are concerned with greenwashing or misrepresentation in this area. So some type of standardization, some type of additional focus um, and really moving further along the continuum in the U.S. would be next steps. And then the point that you made, Adeline, about E versus the S versus the G, that's critical because we're finding groups that are focused either on the E, either on the S, or on the G, not necessarily the whole package yet. Um, so that's, a, that's another consideration there. Um, so I think the institutional space in the U.S. has fully adopted this. But the financial intermediary space is still a little bit in the wait, see mode and discussion mode. Connor, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, it'll be no surprise to know that, that Europe maybe is a little bit further along the road um, in terms of integrating ESG within client policies and, and client portfolios. That's been accelerated over the next or the last year or so, uh, where SFDR, which is a specific regulation centered around ESG, has come into play within Europe. And that's really caused the, the rubber to hit the road to a degree with some wealth managers and asset managers in kind of forcing them to have a look at how they actually manage portfolios for clients and whether they want to make binding commitments to certain ESG categories to be able to label their products and their portfolios as Article uh, 6, 8 or 9 under SFDR. So we're probably at that step, uh, Greg, that you mentioned in terms of the standardization. But uh, I would say that it's it's hasn't been an easy process. Um, and certainly for wealth managers and financial intermediaries, who are managing client portfolios that largely will consist of uh, pooled funds, it's actually been quite a bit of a challenge in trying to assess how SFDR will be applicable and do they have the data and the information to be able to label some of their portfolios as Article 8 or Article 9 uh, to be able to, uh, let's say, take advantage of those trends that we've, we've seen in our survey. 
from from clients who certainly are more interested in that side of things. So yeah, a little bit further ahead, but uh, certainly not without its challenges, particularly around data and being able to um, absolutely identify exactly what's going on within portfolios. I, th- I think I'll just jump in here uh, really quickly, um, Connor and, and Greg, because it struck me that as I think about the clients that have come to speak to more so about what we think around ESG, it struck me that the, the flavor of their conversation and their questions vary depending on whether they are a they have a European parent or an American parent or a local Asia homegrown um, a parent. So the discussions that they have around ESG, as you highlighted, Connor, uh, when it comes uh, with, a, with a European parent, there are always a lot of uh, a lot of jargon. <laughs> Definitely a lot of comment uh, commentary around the financial reporting aspects about why their platform and their ESG funds are better than than other ESG funds out there. Uh, while those with American parents, it's uh, uh, sometimes a, a bit more of a well, let's let's wait and see. But here's a load of information that we've got and a load of research. Uh, while those with more local homegrown, they tend to be entirely focused on the returns, the return differential, uh, rather than the story of how uh, carbon transition and uh, the, the focus on sustainability and also regulatory pressures that may erode away uh, at returns uh, because you are investing globally after all, and this is this is a global problem problem or increases the cost or you know changes some somehow the net of tax returns. So I just thought I want to put that in there because uh, it struck me uh, being in Asia just means there's so many um, colorful flavors about how they are approaching ESG, and of course you know no no one way is is the right way. Uh, it's just uh, a symptom of where we sit in. Asia. Thank you. Adeline, I think that's that's spot on in that you highlighted this is a global problem and a glo- it requires a global solution, yet we're really not globally aligned yet. So I, I think we'll get there, but uh, there's a lot of different drivers uh, going on in the world. And because there's so many, what it seems like so many external events, um, I'm concerned that some of the attention will be pulled away from it. Like I said, it's coming. It's a question of what the pace is. Absolutely. The last topic then we wanted to speak about briefly was around operational alpha and what that can help, uh, how that can help financial intermediaries in terms of engaging with clients and, and providing a better outcome. And when we think about operational alpha, it can be, things that like the ability to act quickly from an asset allocation perspective or a manager selection perspective. But increasingly, one of the trends we're seeing within Europe is around uh, risk management, access to uh, portfolio data of underlying companies and being able to have conversations with clients around that. And to give an example of that, I think it's worth flagging a couple of events over the last number of years. So one would be what's happened uh, in Russia and Ukraine uh, earlier this year. And as a result of that, we had quite a lot of questions from our clients and from our financial intermediary clients about what sort of exposure uh, did the underlying portfolios have to Russian or to Ukrainian securities? And clients were asking that from an investment perspective. I think there is uh, also an emotive angle to it, but also that ESG piece in terms of knowing how the portfolio was actually positioned. And if you're invested in multiple pooled funds, uh, gaining access to that sort of information in a timely and efficient way is actually quite challenging. And I think that's being accelerated again by elements of regulation within Europe. 
so SFDR is having a, a big effect on effectively regulators and coming to financial intermediaries and saying, don't tell me about your ESG policies. Show me how you're actually executing ESG considerations. And that's led to some issues with some of those financial intermediaries being able to actually provide the data. And what we've been encouraging our financial intermediaries clients to do is review what sort of transparency they have and can provide to their clients. Because we really do believe that if you're able to clearly illustrate your ESG commitments and your portfolio positioning to clients, you're much more likely to succeed in client acquisition and servicing them in a, in an efficient manner. Any thoughts on, on those aspects around operational alpha and how it relates to financial intermediaries uh, for, from maybe over to Adeline? Yeah, Connor, I think in Asia, a, a big theme uh, around the wealth management industry is around investor protection. And as mentioned, Asia is a collection of many, many uh, key markets when it comes to assessing the middle and high net worth and also the private banking sector. So investor protection tends to cover a wide spectrum because you have very professional established uh, investors uh, who's been doing this for years and years for themselves and their own families. And then you have those that are growing into that bracket and being served uh, by the the wealth management uh, industry directly. So the operational alpha challenge I find in Asia is around firstly establishing that customer suitability to fulfill the regulatory expectations about how you match a product uh, with a client's risk profile. And those regulations will be quite different uh, in different markets. And yet many banks uh, and wealth management platforms want to operate a single platform uh, with a single uh, standardized way of dealing with their clients in order to build scale, uh, which is something Mercer is very, very familiar with. So the pressure on making sure that the way that they set up their operations to assess and determine customer suitability fulfills several regulations at the same time has certainly ramped up uh, the challenges on having very straightforward frameworks that can be signed off by the risk management teams, having uh, very good systems in place uh, that can ensure that all data is being managed and stored correctly. Because again, data privacy laws uh, differ from, from markets to markets. And I think that's where Mercer has also helped them to think about how they put these pieces together, ourselves being uh, experts at matching asset allocation, uh, understanding product risk, with how investment appetite and investment objectives will differ across uh, different investors. Another aspect of the Operation Alpha, which I probably enjoy more because it's all about the business and uh, acquiring new clients is on the customer journey. How the uh, efforts to set up their systems want to link into uh, understanding a client's knowledge and experience about different products and uh, different markets and how they can help the client expand that knowledge and experience so they themselves can broaden the kind of products and services that they can offer to clients while uh, meeting the regulatory requirements on how they're making asset allocation, making discretionary calls, uh, making advisory uh, suggestions to to the clients on on different products. So I think the the Operation Alpha challenge um, continues uh, across banks and I think more so for Asia, uh, predominantly as uh, wealth managers are looking to achieve scale and sometimes they may end up selling to the same 
uh, investor, but just in different markets? And then how, how would you make sure that your platform continues to tell a very consistent story? So definitely an, an area that we've seen more and more questions to Mercer. Uh, and also given that our operational due diligence team, Sentinel, uh, looks at product level due diligence and risk at you know, through a very different lens uh, than many of us usually would. Uh, that's another dimension that I think uh, lots of wealth managers have appreciated when they come and speak to Marissa about this challenge. Yeah, I would just add, I think those things are spot on. I would add one thing. In the, in the financial intermediary community, technological advancement, sound operational or organizational um, operations, and simplicity are all underlying themes. And as technology and as proper organizational structure allows for the end user to have a user-friendly experience and for the uh, advisors and investment managers to have accurate, timely access to investment data, all this is positive for the space. And I think that's the direction we're heading. And I think we're seeing that on a global basis. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's all about the user experience, whether that's the end client or, or the in-house investment team. And certainly think it's it's moving well in that direction. Um, unfortunately, we've reached time uh, for this particular episode. I think we could talk about these topics all day. So I'd just like to say thank you to Greg and, and Adeline for joining. I think to, to recap how we're thinking about 2020-23 and key considerations for financial intermediaries, there's looking at the changing macro environment and how that potentially changes how client portfolios should be positioned, the integration of alternatives and ensuring suitability of the right type of alternatives for your clients, uh, ESG integration, albeit that that might change a little bit or vary a little bit depending where in the world that you're currently sitting. And then also looking at what we've referred to as operational alpha uh, and changing operating models that might provide a better user experience for your clients and for your in-house investment team. Uh, thankfully, all of these teams are very well summarized in a report that we've recently uh, released on this topic uh, that is available on the website and if you have any questions on any of these themes or topics please do contact your typical mercer consultant thank you very much uh, for listening today this content is for institutional investors and information purposes only it does not contain investment financial legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose the materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Mm -hmm.